0: And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5. As you're turning there, something I was thinking while we were singing, uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that we sing not only to please God, which we certainly do, uh, but also to annoy the devil. Um, uh, Seriously. And I would encourage you to remind yourself of that. You know, this is not like we're sitting around singing kumbaya around the campfire or something like that. In a way, uh, singing is spiritual warfare, uh, if it's singing God's praises. Um, And, you know, it perhaps might not be, you know, my favorite style. Uh, In a way, that's okay. Because, again, we're here to please God by singing truth about what he has done and to enrage the devil. Um, And when you look at it that way, I think it does heighten the gravity of what we're doing when we sing God's praises. Let's go. Yeah. (laughs) But seriously, I mean, we just sang, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. The devil doesn't like us singing that. He wants us to be, you know, like him and wasting our lives and destroying ourselves. Uh, So, again, maybe remind yourself of that from time to time, that... There is a very true sense in which singing is spiritual warfare. It's not just singing around the campfire or something like that. Let's pray before we study God's Word. Oh Lord, what we are about to do is of uh, infinite significance, infinite gravity. Uh, Please, Lord, grip us now by your Spirit with what we're doing. Uh, We're not just playing games. We're not... Uh, just having a little talk about uh, the Bible. Uh, We are engaging in spiritual warfare. We're uh, tearing down principalities and powers. We're uh, declaring the truth that a new king has arrived and that his spirit is uh, saving and transforming and building the kingdom of God here on earth. So please help us, Lord, help us to pay attention, to engage, to listen attentively. Please help me by your Holy Spirit to preach with power, uh, to convict, to, to, to illuminate. We do pray that you would do mighty things now through your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. God give us ears to hear his word. About 15 years ago, I came down with pneumonia. It was a less than enjoyable experience. I remember coughing so much that I literally could not fall asleep. Uh, I'd just about fall asleep when this coughing fit would come upon me and then it would wake me up. Uh, And this went on for about 36 hours straight. Well, one of the blessings of that experience was that for the first time in my life, I started reading Mark Twain. Um, I can still remember it vividly. It was about 2 in the morning, and I was just too groggy to read the typical kind of like theological, biblical stuff that I usually read. So I was looking around my basement, and I found this collection of Mark Twain stories. I started reading it just on a whim, and within minutes, I was captivated. Uh, If you've never read Mark Twain, he is hilarious, like better than modern-day stand-up comedians. So throughout that night, I'd alternate between these coughing fits and these laughing fits, and the Lord used that to enable me to make it through my bout with pneumonia. Well, something else I discovered about Mark Twain, not only is he hilarious, he's also frequently profound. Uh, He makes these very astute observations about human life, human experience, that just ring true with so many of us. Here's one of my favorite ones, you may have heard this before, but Mark Twain famously said, my father was an amazing man. The older I got, the smarter he got. When I was 14 years old, I was amazed at how unintelligent my father was. But by the time I turned 21, I was astounded how much he had learned in the last seven years. Now, I will confess that I have had that identical experience with my own father. When I was an arrogant teenager, you know, maybe 14 years old, 16 years old, I thought that I knew everything and that my dad was useless and clueless. I don't need your rules, dad. I got this all figured out. I don't need your counsel, dad. I got this handled. But as I've grown older, and especially as I've I've had my own kids, I've come to discover how truly wise my dad was, why he did what he did, why he said what he said. And honestly, I'm embarrassed today at the pride and the ignorance I displayed as a foolish teenager. Any of you been there? It's interesting that something similar has taken place in my relationship with the Holy Spirit. I really believe I became a Christian about when I was five years old, pretty young, and at that time, I was almost completely ignorant of the Holy Spirit, his person and work. I think I knew he existed and that he was God, but other than that, I had really little clue about what he was doing, all this stuff about convicting, converting, transforming. Uh, At five, I don't know if I knew any of that. But the longer I'm a Christian, the more amazed I am at all the Holy Spirit does. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I appreciate his various ministries, both in my life and in the lives of others. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit was doing all those vital ministries all along, even when I was ignorant of them. That's one of the most blessed truths about the Holy Spirit. He's not really limited by our capacity to understand. For thousands of years, he's been doing his various works. And I thank God that my ignorance didn't hinder any of that. But here's the thing. Just like growing in my understanding of my Father has increased my appreciation for my Father, so also you growing in your understanding of what the Spirit does can increase your appreciation for what the Spirit does. If you really understand and see what the Spirit is doing, that can move you to dramatic greater joy, and it can move you to pray more accurately, more appropriately, in line with what the Spirit's doing. Well, it's with this that we continue this little mini-series entitled Your Relationship with the Holy Spirit. I honestly haven't plotted out exactly where we're all going. Um, And let me throw this out there. If you've got questions regarding the Holy Spirit that you'd like addressed in this series, maybe you can text them to me, email them to me, uh, talk to me at the door. Uh, Obviously, I want to help you understand what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. So if there are things that you're curious about, let me know. Um, But for a little bit here, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is because in our ongoing study of 1 Thessalonians, we've come to 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which says, do not quench the Spirit. It's a beautiful command. It's a God-inspired command. The problem is, however, so many of us have such a minimal understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does that we can't even put that principle into practice. So what we're doing in this mini-series is we're laying a foundation. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? How does he work in our lives? And the entire goal is so that we can then, in, then be enabled to obey 1 Thessalonians 5.19. We began this series three weeks ago by talking about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you can and should have a relationship. He's Almighty God, equal with the Father and equal with the Son, and he's an individual, a person with whom you can and should have a relationship Two weeks ago we talked about the way in which the Spirit's ministries changed considerably after the day of Pentecost. Uh, There's certain things that the Spirit's always doing, uh, inspiring prophets and apostles, giving people the new birth, that sort of thing, but after Jesus ascended to heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit there were new and different things the Spirit started doing that he wasn't doing in the Old Testament, Uh, namely things like indwelling, sealing, baptism, so forth. That's just a quick summary of where we've been so far, and again And encourage you, if you haven't been here for these sermons, to either listen to them or watch them. Uh, They're all available online, totally for free. And again, I'm not trying to promote myself at all, but it would be to your advantage to understand a bit about who the Holy Spirit is and his works so that you can better engage with him. Well, today we're going to be talking specifically about one ministry of the Holy Spirit, his work of conviction. The Holy Spirit's work of conviction. What is that? How does that happen? And how should we respond to that? Where we're going, Lord willing, today. And my hope and prayer is that all of us will increasingly experience the Holy Spirit's conviction, and respond to it properly with faith and repentance. Now, I know Drew already read it, but take a look up here again at John 16:7 through 11. I'm going to make a few comments on this passage. In John 16:7 through 11, Jesus says this: Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, pause there. Isn't that a shocking thought? A lot of us think, man, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus were walking on the planet right now? I could go up to him, shake his hand, hang... Well, actually, no. It's better that he ascends back to heaven so that then he can pour out his Holy Spirit. And if he doesn't ascend back to heaven, he can't pour out his Holy Spirit. I know that that, again, is kind of mind-blowing, but that's exactly what Jesus says. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper, we've talked about before, is the Holy Spirit. I think the King James translates it's comforter. Same idea. The helper will not come come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now in this passage, we're introduced to this entire ministry of the Holy Spirit's conviction. And that's where we want to start. What is the Holy Spirit's conviction? What is this? Maybe imagine, you know, don't say anything out loud at this point, but if somebody asks you, what is conviction? How would you answer that? Well, looking here at John 16, that word convict, the Holy Spirit will convict the world, it's an interesting word. It's actually used in legal contexts of a prosecuting attorney. A prosecuting attorney. Now, what does the prosecuting attorney do? You know, if you've ever seen, you know, Matlock or Law and Order or something like that, what's the prosecutor, prosecuting attorney's job? Well, his job is to emphasize and to point out the guilt of the accused. Am I right? He'll use this piece of evidence, he'll call that witness, he'll make this argument, but the entire point is to prove that this person is a guilty lawbreaker. Realize the Holy Spirit performs a ministry very much like that in conjunction with the hearing of the Word of God. You hear some truth of the Bible, and you can hear it in a variety of ways. The mechanism through which we hear it is, is that's secondary. Uh, you know, it could be a sermon. Could be a book, could be a track, could be a YouTube video, could be just an impersonal conversation in the hallway. But you hear some truth of the Word of God, and then all of a sudden that truth pierces your heart with a power and and an angst that you've never experienced before. You're strangely overwhelmed. You sense your guilt, you sense your hopelessness, you realize you've disobeyed God and incurred His wrath. You fear the consequences of what you've done and you desire forgiveness. In fact, I'd contend that at that very moment, you desire forgiveness more than anything else in all the world. If you've ever experienced that, you've experienced the Holy Spirit's conviction. For again, like it says, he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, if we really wanted to break this down scientifically, uh, conviction is made up of three parts. Bring that next slide up, if you would. All three of these parts need to be evident for it to be real Holy Spirit conviction, and if any of these are lacking, it's not Holy Spirit conviction. The first is a persuasion of the truthfulness of the Bible. You know, if the Bible remains in the category of, like, myths and legends, it's not really going to convict you. I mean, is anybody really convicted by, like, Pinocchio or something like that? No. But it's when you really believe that this is truth and that these events happen that that has the power to convict you. But secondly, there's a sense of fear of the consequences of disobedience. It's not just, yeah, I did wrong, but, you know, to err is human, or no big deal. No, there's this fear, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I kind of like that feeling you felt when the principal called you into his office. You're like, this is this is not going to end well. But lastly, there's a desire to repent and turn from sin and to submit to the truth. If the Holy Spirit's at work, you're going to want to turn from the direction you were going in to turning to God's way. All three of those are evident in true Holy Spirit conviction. And again, if any of those are lacking, it's something else. It's not true Holy Spirit conviction. Somebody might know a lot of Bible facts, but that isn't Holy Spirit conviction. Somebody might weep over the fact that they're in trouble, but that's not Holy Spirit conviction. Somebody might be able to argue theology until they're blue in the face, but if there's not these three three elements there, a persuasion of the truthfulness of the Bible, a sense of fear over the consequences of disobedience, and a desire to repent, it's something else. Now here's something very important I want to emphasize. The Holy Spirit can use any part of the Bible to convict people. I mean, he could use the Genesis, you know, creation account if he wanted to, but it does seem as if he especially delights to use God's law to convict people. The Holy Spirit especially delights to use God's law to convict people. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 7, 1. Is the law sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin died. I was alive once apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I realize Paul says a lot there, but here's basically how it works. You hear of this command, and it could be any command. Again, obviously Paul just uses covetousness here, but it could be anything. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery. You're convicted, you're like, man, I, I've disobeyed this command, I've committed adultery, I've coveted whatever. But then again, you're cut to the heart with guilt and shame, But then you're motivated to flee from that sin. Again, I hope and pray you've all experienced this because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's conviction is. Now, is the Holy Spirit's conviction a bit painful? Absolutely. You know, it doesn't feel good to be told how bad we are. It doesn't feel good to have your toes stepped on, uh, to have your heart kind of plowed. Realize that's necessary. Necessary. It's it's the proper diagnosis of a mortal illness before we're able to take advantage of the remedy for that illness. Yes, it humiliates us and breaks our hearts and can move us to tears, but that's the point. It's actually a good thing. In the words of James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. Now here's something very important you need to get, and if all that I've said up to this point is maybe old hat, maybe tune in especially here. Holy Spirit conviction is not mere emotional pressure or psychological manipulation. Millions have misunderstood this to their own destruction. Holy Spirit wrought conviction is not mere emotional pressure or psychological destruction. You get this wrong and you can really mess your life up in the lives of others. I mean, there's an awful lot that you can do to move people emotionally that has absolutely nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Relying on stirring mood music, employing dim lighting and smoke machines, uh, telling these really extended emotional stories that really have no basis in Scripture. Long altar calls accompanied by 15 more verses of Just As I Am. Sad pictures of little puppies and kittens. I mean, again, you can do a lot to sort of manipulate people emotionally, and that's not the Holy Spirit conviction. I mean, just imagine this. You could get a bunch of unbelievers in here and play the theme to Rocky, or let it go from frozen, and next thing you know, they're weeping and you know, standing up and waving their hand. that That's not the Holy Spirit. Why would we expect any different just because it takes place in a church building? No, the kind of emotional manipulation that I've been describing, that's actually a satanic counterfeit. Satan counterfeits everything that God does. Keep that principle in mind. And the counterfeit of Holy Spirit conviction is this kind of emotional manipulation that I've been describing. So learn the difference here and don't fall for the satanic counterfeit. True Holy Spirit conviction is always in response to truth from God's Word. God's Word is sort of the conduit through which the conviction comes. And this is why we want to do everything that we can to get as much Bible into our evangelism and preaching and teaching as possible. I mean, of course, stories and illustrations are helpful for communicating. Of course, you don't want to preach over people's heads. You want want them to get what you're saying. But all of that should serve the Word of God and elevate the Word of God. That ought not to be the main diet. So let's keep God's word front and center in all of our ministry, for again, that is the channel through which the Holy Spirit does his convicting work. Let's just a little bit about what conviction is. Let's talk next about conviction and the unbeliever. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the hearts of non-Christians to provoke them to repent in faith? Now, were you to look up the terms convict, conviction in the Bible, the majority of them do pertain to unbelievers being convicted of their need to trust in Jesus. And this is what takes place in the life of the non Christian. That conviction is, again, the plowing up of the hard ground so that they're then able to receive the seed of the gospel. When I was a, when I was a kid, our family had this huge garden in our backyard. Uh, every year it kind of grew a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, we'd grow corn, tomatoes, green beans, so forth. And I can still remember in the early spring, after the winter, You know, and I grew up in upstate New York, so imagine ground that's been sitting under, uh, you know, three feet of snow for a long, long time. Uh, The ground's hard, smooth, dense. Obviously, you couldn't plant anything on it. So what my dad would do, he'd bring out the rototiller. You know what a rototiller is? It was kind of this little, like, automatic plow thing about the size of a lawnmower, and it would just grind the soil up. And he'd go over the area that we were going to garden in, and this soil that was so dense and hard and and smooth, uh, next thing you know, after the rototiller went over it, it it was soft and fluffy, and you could plant seeds in it. Realize that's exactly what Holy Spirit conviction does. By nature, our hearts are cold and hard and dense. And get this, there is absolutely nothing you can do on your own to change that. That's maybe the scariest thought. There's nothing I can do on my own to change the state of my heart. But when the Holy Spirit convicts, it's like that rototiller going through, crushing, chopping. And before long, that soil that was so dense and hard and cold is now fluffy and able to receive the seed of God's word. Listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That ought to be our prayer for every time we open the word of God. In our Sunday school classes, obviously in our sermons, Wednesday night Bible studies, small group studies, pray that as the word goes forth, it goes forth not only in word, but in power and in full conviction. Listen to Acts 237. Interestingly, this passage never uses the word conviction, but uh, if you've got any eyes to see, this is clearly talking about conviction. Acts 237. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now I've implied this already, but it does deserve repeating, that the Spirit's conviction takes place before a person believes and is actually necessary for a person to believe. You've got to get the order correct here. The Spirit's work of conviction actually takes place before somebody's believing. It's the necessary work to enable them to believe. Again, it points out their guilt and their need to trust in Jesus. It persuades them of their utter hopelessness and their need for a Savior. And without that ministry of conviction what'll happen? The truth of the Bible will just bounce off their hard hearts like that seed on the rocky path, and they'll be no more persuaded by it than some silly advertisement on the evening news. This incidentally is why in a lot of our evangelism, we share the gospel and people are just absolutely disinterested. I mean, I think everything that we're telling them about Jesus and the resurrection and heaven, it's just on par with leprechauns. I've been there. I've been, you know. I've almost caught myself, I'm explaining this stuff, I'm like, you don't buy this at all, do you? Uh, What's going on is that the Spirit's not at work, and what we need to do is to combine our evangelism efforts with fervent prayer. Please, O Lord, convict. Please, O Lord, break up that hard heart. And, And this is why, in our prayer meetings here, on Wednesday nights, Sunday before Sunday school, I implore you, please bring up your evangelism opportunities. If you've got coworkers, friends, kids that you're trying to share the gospel with, and especially if they think the gospel is just on par with leprechauns, Uh, please ask for the prayers of your church family. Because again, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He often does it in response to prayer, and especially in response to the prayers of his people. So let's pray. Additionally, going back to something I said earlier, this is exactly why our evangelism must include both the bad news and the good news. Both the bad news and the good news, what is it that the Holy Spirit delights, especially to use to convict? The law. The law, so we've got to get to the point where we persuade people that they are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of god so they see their need for jesus i know that we naturally hate offending anybody or at least most of us do as americans we never want to tell anybody that we're wrong we're in this culture today where we tolerate everything celebrate everything and to not do so is bigotry and yet if we want people to be converted and saved we have no other choice We must point out the ways in which they've rebelled against God and broken his laws. For until that takes place, the Holy Spirit's conviction is probably not going to drive them to see their need for Jesus. I think we see this sort of thing taking place in Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. If you think about it, in some ways, his conversation with the rich young ruler is so confusing. You know, the rich young ruler, I'm sort of assuming you're familiar with it, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if somebody came to you or me and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what would we say? We'd probably say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's exactly not what Jesus does. Remember what Jesus does? He starts enumerating the Ten Commandments. Now, what in the world is going on there? Well, Jesus knows what we don't always know. He knew that this man was hard and proud, and he needed to be convicted and humbled. And to do that, he brings up the law of God to crush his pride so that he'll then turn from his sin and flee to Jesus. You follow that? If you're familiar at all with the ministry of Ray Comfort, I actually think his approach is right on. Uh, You might want to check out Ray Comfort's book, Hell's Best Kept Secret, or probably even better, the free sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret, same title. Uh, He really lays out in detail what I'm trying to explain here, that we've got to bring the law of God to bear on people's consciences so that they then see their need for Jesus. Uh, Otherwise, again, it's just going to bounce off hard ground with no interest at all. Check that out. Moving on quickly, let's talk now about the conviction of the Spirit and the believer. Christians, what role does the Holy Spirit's conviction play in the life of Christians? Now, I said earlier that the majority of the passages talking about conviction do pertain to non-Christians being driven to Jesus, and that's true. But here's something I want to emphasize, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit does not stop when we believe. It's not as if we don't need this anymore the second we trust in Jesus, No, the convicting work of the Spirit is essential for believers to grow in godliness. All of us, even believers who have been Christians for decades, we're far from perfect. We need to be shown our sins. We need to learn to hate our sins so that we fight against them and put them to death. This is actually part of the normal, healthy Christian life. There are plenty of examples of this in Scripture, but maybe the most obvious and powerful is the one where Peter denies Jesus. Again, you'll remember the story. Peter claimed, I will never deny you. Even if all fall away, I will never fall away. What does Jesus say to him? Tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Well, remember he does, sadly, deny Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. But what happens immediately after that? Matthew 26, 75. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Again, that passage never uses the term conviction, but that is conviction nonetheless. Peter remembers the word of God You will deny me. The Spirit convicts him, and that conviction drives him to weep. But if you know the rest of the story, it doesn't end there. Peter repents, he's restored, and he goes on to be one of the great preachers of the early church. And just imagine, had Peter not been convicted then and there, had Peter continued on in his sin, I mean, that would have been a disaster. So thank God that he convicted Peter because, again, Peter wouldn't have become what he became without this ministry of conviction. In reality, the normal Christian life ought to be characterized by regular conviction of the Spirit. I mean, we do not believe in perfectionism here. I actually think perfectionism is a dangerous false teaching and that you you should run the other way when you hear people talking about it. All of us are sinners. We're going to sin every day, in fact, multiple times a day, and what we need is the Spirit to convict us so that we repent and run back to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, I don't think I've felt any conviction in years. You know, don't raise your hand, but, you know, maybe I've been a Christian all my life and I don't think I've been convicted about anything in like 20, 30 years. If that's you, you should be horrified. That is not a good sign at all. The Lord only knows why that is, but. Don't let that sit there, address that, and figure that out. Have I been plugging my ears for some reason? Have I been distracting myself with my cell phone or something like that for some reason? Because again, regular conviction ought to be a part of a normal, healthy Christian life, but if it's not taking place in your life, what's wrong? Now here's something else I want you to think about. When you're experiencing that conviction... And again, it could be anything. It could be a sermon, it could be a book, it could be a track, it could be a YouTube video. Honestly, for me, some of the deepest conviction I've felt is in response to these books that are like three, 400 years old. So it doesn't really matter the, the means through which the conviction's coming. But when it's coming, what you need to get is that at that point, you're no longer dealing with the preacher. You're no longer dealing with the author, the Bible study leader. You're actually dealing with God himself. God is working through those words to convict you. Therefore, to reject that, to plug your ears, to ignore that, is to oppose God Himself. And if you're a true Christian, that's something you never want to do. And this is why any Christian who desires to grow in godliness should remain sensitive to the conviction and respond immediately whenever you feel the first pangs of it. Do everything you can to remain sensitive. You don't want to cauterize your soul. As soon as you start feeling, you know, there's conviction here. I'm doing what I shouldn't be doing. I'm looking at something I shouldn't be looking at. I'm, I just said something I shouldn't say. I'm going somewhere I shouldn't be. Repent then and there and soon. Don't harden your heart. Don't change the channel. Don't distract yourself with football or things that can be wholesome. You know, that's the thing. It's not like the options are conviction or you know I become like Hitler. You can often distract yourself with seemingly wholesome stuff, but by doing that, you're uh, quenching what the Spirit's doing in your life. God himself is at work in your heart when you're feeling conviction, and it's only fools who try to oppose God. Well, that's a little bit about what conviction is, both in the life of the believer and the unbeliever. Hopefully now you get a little bit of an understanding of what it is. We're about two thirds done, but let me share with you now seven reflections on Holy Spirit conviction. These were things I wasn't quite sure where to fit them, kind of a miscellaneous bunch of thoughts. Some of these are gonna be longer than others, but none of them are very long. If what we've said about conviction is true, so what? Seven reflections on Holy Spirit conviction. First, consider conviction a gift and thank God for it whenever it happens. Consider conviction a gift and thank God for it whenever it happens. You know, it's kind of like this. Is it a gift when your doctor tells you that you have cancer? Yes and no. I mean, none of us want to hear that, but think of the alternative. Would it be loving for this doctor to not tell me I have cancer when I do have cancer? That wouldn't be helpful at all. So also conviction, again, it can humiliate us and embarrass us, and it hurts. But at the same time, it's part of the necessary remedy so that we might be healed. And again, like I mentioned earlier, we can't convict ourselves on our own our flesh isn't going to just produce this out of nowhere. The world and the devil don't convict us. What's more, it's not the really moving preacher or the really moving music or the really eloquent author who's convicting us. It's God, the Holy Spirit. So whenever that happens, thank God for it. Thank you, God, that you did not let me die in my sins. Thank you, God, that you did not let me harden myself in my pride and arrogance. For again, just consider the alternative. The alternative is the run headlong into sin and to destroy ourselves. And uh, I don't think any of us want that. So consider conviction a gift and thank God for it whenever it happens. Second reflection. Pray for the Spirit's work of conviction, both for others and yourself. Pray for the Spirit's work of conviction, both for others and for yourself. I'd encourage you to make this part of your daily prayer routine. All of us probably have things we pray for every day. Spouse, kids, nation, whatever. Add to that list Spirit, please convict people. Uh, Before I read the Bible this morning, Lord, convict me. In conjunction with Tim's sermon on Sunday, Lord, please convict me. Sunday school lessons, Wednesday night Bible study, Lord, please perform powerfully your ministry of conviction. I've been praying this for our entire nation lately. I mean, any Christian of any sort looks at our nation, is deeply concerned, and it appears as if we've totally lost lost our minds. I mean, it does remind me of the days of Judges, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So I've been praying, Lord, please cause this mighty fear of God, this widespread conviction to fall upon our entire nation. Wake people up to see their guilt, to see the brevity of life, to sense their need for a Savior. Cause that to happen like in millions of Americans' lives. For if that does not happen, I shudder to think what our nation's going to be in 20, 25 years. Quickly, a third reflection on Holy Spirit conviction. Prioritize listening to preachers or teachers, authors, whatever, whom the Spirit uses to convict you. Don't make this your exclusive diet, but at the same time, from time to time, include preachers who seem to have a special ability to convict you. Now, many of us, I know, have our favorite preachers, Bible teachers, authors, folks we listen to on the radio, and that's totally fine. I do as well. Um, and some of these are better in certain areas than others. I've got a whole coll- It's kind of embarrassing how many podcasts i've got on my phone it's like 90 no exaggeration and some of these guys are better in some areas than others some are really good in the original languages some are really good in theology some are really good on explaining the glories of jesus that sort of thing but in addition to that i've got a small group that seem to really deeply convict me when i listen to them you ever known a preacher bible teacher like that you almost have to like get yourself ready before the sermon because you know that part way through the sermon i'm going to feel really really uncomfortable Include some of those in your diet because, again, it's good for you. Don't make it the, the only thing you ever listen to, but include those in your diet because it's good for your soul. Again, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We all need a humbling from time to time. Psalm fifty one seventeen. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you're curious who the guys are that I listen to, ask me at the door and I can let you know who they are but find the ones that seem to convict you. And we need this again, because part of growing in godliness is seeing how far we yet have to go. Quickly, a few more reflections. Fourth, realize that if and when you ignore or refuse conviction, hardness of heart develops, making it easier to sin in a given area. This ought to knock our socks off, even though I know I'm guilty of it myself. Realize that if and when you ignore or refuse conviction, Hardness of heart develops, making it easier to sin in a given area. Now, the Bible could not be clearer here. The Holy Spirit's work of conviction, curiously, it is one of those works that can be resisted. Other works cannot be resisted. This one can be. You can harden your heart. You can plug your ears. You can turn your eyes away. But realize that when you're doing that, you're cauterizing your conscience in that area. You know what the term cauterization means? You know, if you get a wound or something like that they apply this heat to kind of meld it together but when you do that you lose all sensitivity and feeling there when you do that in regard to sin that's what you're doing to your soul you're hardening that area so that all of a sudden you'll do things that you know today you'd be horrified by them 20 years from now you'll do them comfortably and not think twice it's a horrifying thought to do so is spiritual suicide it's hurting yourself it's kind of like this imagine you're driving along on the road, and the check engine light comes on. You can see smoke coming up out of the uh, hood, and you know, the, uh, maybe the RPMs are just off the, off the charts. But instead of fixing your engine, what do you do? You get, about a, get out a piece of duct tape and stick it over the check engine light. Is that utter foolishness? It is, but this is what we've all done when we've plugged our ears to the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's like sticking a piece of duct tape over the check engine light. Non-Christians can do this. This is what Ephesians 4.18 says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. But don't think that Christians have lost this ability. Ephesians 4.26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Actually, I like the old King James better, don't give the devil a foothold. By hardening your heart to conviction, you're actually giving the devil a foothold in your life. I don't understand fully what that means, but it's a scary thought. And again, any of us who are Christians who want to grow in holiness don't want to have anything to do with that. This, again, is why it's so important to learn to distinguish the Spirit's work of conviction from emotional manipulation. You should ignore emotional manipulation, but it's deadly to to ignore the Spirit's conviction. So let's just do a little exercise here. Say you're sitting in a sermon and the preacher's telling this long moving story about this puppy that fell into a well and then somehow he gets from there to uh, this really passionate plea to give money to his ministry and then he closes with this altar call and all of a sudden you look around and so many people are going forward um, and there's been like precious little Bible in the entire thing. Uh, That's where you got to wake up and say, okay, I don't need to fall into this trap. I don't need to be emotionally manipulated here. Uh, This is not the spirit at work. This is just sort of tricks to manipulate people. But on the other hand, say you're in a sermon or a Bible study, whatever, and the preacher's preached rather plainly on something that you're failing to do. Say the need to pray more or to love your spouse, give to missions, whatever the case might be. He's shown you clearly that this is what Scripture teaches. You've seen where you've fallen short. You feel overwhelmed with guilt. That's where you are obligated to respond. And to ignore that is to simply harden your heart and then make it even easier to sin in that area. You follow me? So again, brothers and sisters, let us do all that we can to remain sensitive to the Spirit's conviction. Let's pray for this, for one another and for your pastor. Repent immediately whenever those first pangs of conviction arise. For again, to do otherwise is spiritually suicidal. Quickly, a fifth reflection on the Spirit's work of conviction. Realize the Spirit virtually always uses other Christians as agents of conviction. Realize... The Spirit virtually always uses other Christians as agents of conviction. Now, if you've been paying attention up to this point, you should understand what I mean. The Spirit doesn't convict people in a vacuum. You know, it's not like you're walking through the jungle and all of a sudden you're just convicted over something. No, you've heard the Word of God proclaimed. And again, how it's proclaimed is secondary. Sermon, Bible study track, YouTube video, whatever. That, that's kind of secondary. But the Word of God must be communicated for conviction to happen. Now, all of that is true, but I want you to expand your vision here. Don't think what I just said applies only to, say, full-time pastors or preachers or missionaries. Actually, the Lord uses all Christians to perform his ministry of conviction. You, in just some informal conversation, maybe you're on the water cooler, you, you, you speak for God, God's Spirit can work through that to convict people and to totally change their lives. Now, of course, I encourage you to be slow to judge here, slow to jump to conclusions, slow to, you know, maybe ask for clarification before you speak up. Obviously, we want to speak the truth in love whenever we speak it. But scripture is emphatic that all believers have an obligation to share the gospel of the non-Christians in their lives. Scripture is clear that all believers have an obligation to rebuke erring brothers and sisters when they fall into sin. And again, God can use your weak fallible informal comment to wake people up and that their lives aren't destroyed think about ephesia or pardon me hebrews three thirteen: exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that's not exhort just on the lord's day and it's not exhort just from the pastor's mouth or the pulpit that seems to envision all of us exhorting one another brother sister i i love you but how you're behaving in this area is sin it's not okay to talk to your spouse that way it's not okay to cut corners at work this way and again something that simple said uh, say at the cafeteria table god can use to convict and lead people to repentance never to forget that the spirit virtually always uses other christians as agents of conviction uh, but that includes you if you're a follower of christ two more we're almost done sixthly as odd as it may sound The Spirit doesn't convict us of all of our sinful habits and behaviors immediately the moment we trust in Jesus. Let me explain what this means before we jump to conclusions. But as odd as it may sound, the Spirit doesn't convict us of all our sinful habits and behaviors immediately the moment we trust in Jesus. Now, any Christian that I've ever talked to on this subject has had the following experience. They've been believers for years, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but then they hear some new truth, maybe in a sermon, book, or something like that, and they're convicted of a behavior that they've been doing for years. You know, let's just say it's crass speech. Um, sadly, in my case, that w- during my high school years, I used a lot of speech that was not appropriate, uh, even for sailors. And for years, I was kind of like okay with it. I kind of like winked at it, didn't really think much about it. Uh, but as God started working in my life, I came to discover, you know, that's totally inappropriate for a Christian to talk that way. We're to glorify God in all areas, including our speech. In Ephesians 4, it's pretty obvious that our speech is to be seasoned with salt, gracious, so forth. Uh, that didn't happen until I was like maybe 22. So for years there, I've been talking this way, never really feeling much conviction about it until the Lord finally woke me up. Now, what was going on there during that period where I wasn't convicted? Was it still sin? Absolutely. Was it still damaging my life, damaging my witness, damaging my church family? Yes. So why wasn't the Holy Spirit convicting me? I mean, there are a variety of answers, but at the end of the day, I've got to say what basically Jesus said in John 3:8: The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is completely wise and loving, and while crass language is sin that I should have repented of like on day one, for his own good and loving reasons, the Spirit didn't convict me until that particular point in my life. Is that mysterious? Absolutely. But I think this is just one more reminder of the way in which engaging with our God is a little bit mysterious. There are behaviors that you might be convicted of today that you practiced for years, but again, without any conviction. Am I saying it was okay? No. But again, in the mystery of God's will, sometimes he doesn't convict us basically until we're ready to deal with it. And I think part of what's going on here is just imagine you got convicted of all of your sins on day one. Like all the sins that you, you know, your entire life on day one of becoming a Christian. I think that would be so kind of overwhelming and and just you can't handle it that you'd probably give up. But God, like a loving, patient, gracious Father, he gives us what we can handle, when we can handle it, and over time grows us and matures us. This is actually one of the toughest things to deal with as a Christian in this world. Why doesn't God make us holy on day one? You know, I've dealt with that. Man, I, I can't wait for heaven because I'll be done with all this sinning. Why doesn't God make us holy on day one? Well, God is wise and God is good, and for his good, wise purposes. He wants this progress of transformation to be slow. And part of me growing in my maturity is accepting that, uh, even though I can't wait for heaven when I'll be perfect. You following me? Let me give you one more Reflection on the Holy Spirit's conviction. Always let Holy Spirit conviction lead you to rest in Jesus. Always let Holy Spirit conviction let you lead you to rest in Jesus. Now, I've implied this already several times this morning, but let me say it emphatically. Conviction is not an end in itself. All right? Conviction is not an end in itself. The goal of conviction is not to make you feel terrible. No, the goal of conviction is to drive you to Jesus, our wonderful, merciful Savior, who delights to save those who call on his name. Again, it's kind of like when I went to the doctor with pneumonia. Getting diagnosed with pneumonia was not the goal. Getting healed from pneumonia was the goal. But in order to get healed, I first needed the diagnosis so that I could then get the proper remedy. So also, again, the reason why the Spirit cracks our hearts and crushes our pride and shows us how far we fall short of the glory of God is not just to make us feel terrible about ourselves. It's so that we'd run to Jesus, who is mighty to save. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God, to have a relationship with the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. What an amazing thought. Ponder that this week. If what I've said this morning you don't buy, if you think this is all just kind of nice religious talk... Under that, do I exist to have a relationship with Almighty God? You get that? That'll blow your mind. And yet the reality of the matter is we've rejected our God and turned from Him. We've sinned. We've tried to live how we wanted to live, regardless of how God designed it to be lived. Basically, we try to live as if we're our own gods, making the own, our own rules, marching to our own drum, uh, without any re- respect to how Almighty God created life to be. How is it that we sin in a million different ways? We tell lies, get lazy at work, mean to our coworkers, mean to our siblings, disrespect our parents. We gossip and slander, we destroy people's reputations. We misuse and abuse our sexuality for self indulgent purposes. Those are just a few of the thousands of ways whereby we're all guilty and lawbreakers in God's sight. And get this breaking just one of God's commands earns us eternal death. Now, if all of us are guilty of breaking thousands of commands, thousands of times, and if breaking one earns us eternal death, what then do we deserve? Because God is righteous and good, he will punish us for our sins. He'll pour out his wrath on us, slightly in this life, and most of us have felt that, but far, far worse in the life to come, after we die, a judgment too horrible for words. And yet, under these Hopeless circumstances, God still loved us. And God did something to reconcile us, to heal and to restore the relationship we destroyed. God provided a savior for all people, a savior who is his very own son. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. God the Son was born as a little baby. Before he became Jesus the man, he was Jesus the baby. And then the toddler, and then the teenager, and then the young man. He grew up, he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, Performed miracles. He taught. He had compassion on the poor. He confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Did an awful lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit. But then he died on the cross. And as he's dying on the cross, he's absorbing the judgment of God our sins deserve. The very hell I would endure forever, for all of my wickedness, poured out on Jesus in its entirety on the cross in my place. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus back from the dead to testify that what I'm telling you right now is true. He ascends to heaven, where he then pours out the Holy Spirit, and now he's inviting you. Turn from your sin, trust in me, be saved. Turn from your sin, trust in me, be forgiven of all of your sins. That's the promise of the gospel. This is why Jesus came to earth, to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to God, and this is why the Holy Spirit convicts us so that we'll run to Jesus and rest in him. So in conclusion, if right now you're feeling the least pang of Holy Spirit conviction, run to Jesus. Run to him now for the first time or for the thousandth time. Run to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Rely on what he has done. Embrace his loving leadership and be reconciled to God. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But let that Holy Spirit conviction lead you to rest in Jesus and be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do thank you so much for the gift of Holy Spirit conviction. Lord, we need this. Without this, we would have destroyed ourselves long ago. So we thank you for the way that you have convicted us of sin. You've led us to repentance. You've changed our lives. So gracious and kind you are. Lord, for those within the hearing of my voice who are not yet believers, who have not yet embraced the Lord Jesus, please work by your spirit now. Draw them to yourself, open their eyes, and give them faith that they might rest in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.